Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the resurrection, specifically last week, uh, about the event uh, shortly after the resurrection, uh, the road to uh, the, the <coughs> excuse me, the two guys that traveled with Jesus on the road, uh, road to Emmaus. Um, <clears throat> one of the results of the resurrection is that <clears throat> we know, we have the confidence that God is in control. Amen? I mean, it, it, it really, when, it, when, it, when, the, when you boil it all down, that is the one thing that identifies God being in control of everything, of life, death, everything. And we can have that confidence. Um, <clears throat> last last week, I I believe it was last week or week before, I don't know. Uh, I I read you part of a song that I love at at Easter time, and that is because He lives. Uh, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. I know He holds the future, <clears throat> and life is worth living just because He lives. And we can have that confidence. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's easy to say, but oftentimes it is hard to grasp if you, if you understand what I mean by that. Uh, we can say, yes, we have confidence, but do we always live like we have confidence? And I see a lot of heads out there doing this. And we're all guilty of that, are we not? <clears throat> so... The, in the closing words of the book of Philippians, <clears throat> Paul shares some experiences that he has of life uh, to the believers there in, in Philippi uh, to help them in, have confidence uh, in, the, in their walk with the Lord. Uh, this morning, the title of my message is, is Striving Together in Confidence. Striving Together in Confidence. And I... And we're gonna we're actually gonna be talking about this for the next two or three weeks. So um, uh, the, you're only gonna get part one uh, of the sermon uh, this morning. Um, but I cho I chose this title very carefully because I believe that confidence is contagious, Amen. just like fear is contagious. I, I believe that confidence is contagious. So. If we as a church can have confidence, what happens when one of us gets fearful? The, the, the hope is that the confidence of the others will overcome the fear. Because we all, we all go through seasons of life, do we not, where we experience fear. I mean, it's just part of life. And if my brothers and sisters in Christ are, are confident in the things of God. It's going to encourage me to be confident and overcome the fear of my life. So confidence, I, I, get, I believe confidence is contagious. Let's read uh, Philippians chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 10. <clears throat> but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me uh, hath flourished again, wherein ye were also 
careful, <clears throat> but not lacking opportunity. For that I speak in respect of, excuse me, I, not that I speak in uh, respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore to be content. I know both how to abase and I know how to abound. Everywhere, in all things, uh, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye will uh, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, excuse me, let, let me start over in verse 18. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell and a sacrifice acceptable, well pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and for the work that you do in our lives. And Lord, we are truly a blessed people. And Lord, I just ask that as we look at this idea of confidence this morning that we can have in you. I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would make us more like you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For a believer of Jesus Christ, there are basically two types of confidence that we can have. The first type is our confidence in the Lord. Look Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That is, when we allow our strength to be anchored in Jesus Christ. The other type of confidence we can have is what we call self-confidence. Now, self-confidence is when you trust in your own ability to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Now, I I don't know about you, but I've learned a long time ago, I'd rather trust in Christ. You know, I I have, I do, God has enabled each and every one of us to, to be able to accomplish certain things. But through Christ, I can accomplish all things. I want to kind of get us going with a question this morning. How, how is 
your level of confidence in Christ this morning? I want you to, I want you to answer, ask yourself that question, and I want you to really contemplate it because <clears throat> there's not one of us that is 100% dependent on Jesus Christ. Now, some of us, the older we get, the more we, we learn to depend on God. But how, how is your level of confidence in Christ? I have, a, I have a picture here for you. I found this quote. Those of you that follow Facebook, you, I put this up on Facebook a while back. <clears throat> in adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job when he wants to do an improving job. To realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the storm. And I, I like I said, I came across this, this quote and I, I put it up on Facebook, but I wanted to share it this morning because there's a lot of truth in this. Typically, what, what do we do when life goes south on us. We, we, we pray and ask God to take things away. Oh, I don't want to go through this. Um, or, or, Lord, help me. Uh, give me the money to pay off this. Or what, you know, I mean, we've all been there. And what do we, we want God to bail us out. When in reality, he's not, he's not wanting to do a removing job. He's wanting to do an improving job. So, this morning, point number one, the byproduct of confidence. We're going to look at Paul's closing um, argument here, I guess you would say, to the Philippian church. And we're going to see three characteristics uh, that we find here, three characteristics of how we can have confidence in the Lord. Are, are really the three byproducts of confidence. Okay? Uh, the first one we see in verse 10 is joy. Joy. Look at verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the least, oh, excuse me, at the last, uh, your care for me hath flourished again wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked, <clears throat> um, but ye lacked opportunity. Well, now, let me, let me give you a secret here <clears throat> about the Greek language. The Greek language is a very precise language. And God, I believe, when God used Hebrew and Greek to write the, write the, 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 uh, the Bible, uh, he chose two languages that were very, very precise. Now I want you to go back and I want you to look at verse 10 and see what kind of rejoicing Paul was doing. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord, what? Greatly. This word is not here as just, in English we use we use words to to flower up sentences and and, and it really doesn't mean a whole lot. But I'm here to tell you, Paul was excited. His joy was beyond 
normal. He was he he rejoiced greatly. All because of his confidence in the Lord. In this relatively small book, it's only four chapters, by the way. In the book of Philippians, the word joy or rejoicing appears 18 times. We could very easily say that the theme of this book is, is, is joy. Look, look at verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Again, this is, a, this is Paul telling the believers to, to find reasons to praise God. You know, the, the, the reality is oftentimes, what, what do we do? When, when, we, when we get in circumstances or, or life happens, so to speak, what do we do? We Oftentimes we will withdraw and we will find reasons to complain. And what is Paul saying here? No, find reasons to be excited about the things of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I, I am always somewhat troubled when I meet someone that says that they love the Lord, but they walk around all the time with a frown on their face. I, I, I you know... It, it, it's not, it's not for me to say whether or not they're saved or not. That, 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 that's not for me to say. But my father-in-law, who was a, just a good old boy, is how you would kind of classify my father-in-law. He grew up in rural South Carolina. <clears throat> he, would, he, would, he would identify people like that. And he'd say, oh, they look like they were weaned on lemon juice. <laughs> you know? <laughs> just... I mean, he had a way of saying things just, I mean, just bring it right down, right down there, you know. <clears throat> now, I want to stop here for a second because it's important we get the context of this letter. Paul is telling the believers, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, does anybody have an idea of where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. Now, I, I don't know about you. I've been in prison. <laughs> Boy, that just, that just totally came out wrong, didn't it? <laughs> Well, I need to clarify that. I have ministered in prison, okay? <laughs> Boy, am I red? <clears throat> Man, okay. <laughs> and I, I know, I, I personally have a friend that I ministered to in prison. Um, that was a few years ago was let out because he was wrongfully imprisoned. And the one thing that I have always loved and appreciated about this guy 
And I, I, I've, I've been going out to the Lovelock prison for, I don't know, six, seven years, something like that. I don't know. And he, he I, I knew him in prison for probably a good four or five years before he got out. And not one time in all the years that I knew him did he ever come to me and say, Pastor, I was wrongfully convicted. I'm not here. I, I'm, I, I shouldn't be here. He never once complained. And I talked to him recently on the phone because he's out now and he drives truck for a living. <clears throat> I talked to him on the phone the other day and, and he told me, he said, you know, I'm glad I went to prison. And I said, really? Why, why is that? And he said, because I found the Lord in prison. He said, the best thing in the world I ever did was go to prison. See, I'm here to tell you, Paul was in prison because he was falsely accused. He had done nothing wrong. Yet he still had joy in his life. And one of the reasons I like this, this guy so much, and I, I just love talking with him, because he's full of joy. You know, he lost 20, 21 years of his life. He has a son that he's never met. Yet, if you were to talk to him, he's one of the happiest guys you'll ever meet. Why? Because his, his, his contentment, his, his, his joy is anchored in Jesus Christ. And one of these days, I'm going to get him here to church. And I'm going to, I, I don't know if he'll preach for us or not, but I'm going to at least get him to give his testimony. I'll tell you, you'll cry like a baby. But he's one of the sweetest Christian men I've ever known. Because his, his joy is not of things of this world. Our joy cannot be taken away from us if it's anchored in Jesus Christ. As I was studying for this, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I thought of some things that what I, I, call, I call joy killers. And I actually went on the internet and I just typed in joy killer just to see what would pop up. And man, there was, I mean, pages and pages and pages. It's amazing. So other people obviously have had the same thought. But anyway, what are some things in our lives that kill our joy? I want to, I want to, I've got, I don't know, I think six things here. I want to, I want to give these to you and, and, and let you kind of ponder them because these are things that everyone in this room battles with. The first one is our circumstances. When, when things don't quite go the way we want them to, right? 
What about broken relationships? Here's one that... Well, let let me just give it to you. Delayed help. Have you ever been in a situation, a circumstance, where you have prayed and asked God, say, God, I need whatever it is, Thursday, 3 o'clock. And Thursday, 4 o'clock comes around, and God still has not answered that prayer. And, and, and we, we look at that as though God is not answering our prayers. But is that, is that necessarily what's going on? No. But what do we do? We get, we get anxious and our joy is, is taken away from us. I, I shouldn't say our joy is taken away. We give our joy away. Uh, what, what about hate? I'll tell you what, somebody who has hate in their heart cannot experience joy. You can't do it. Unplanned obstacles, those are always fun. Yeah, I love those. You, you know, <clears throat> my wife and I are, are as opposite as, as night and day. And, and honestly, my daughter's over here laughing. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I actually deal with unplanned obstacles pretty, pretty well. I, I mean, I just, I, have, I just flow with them, you know, hey, whatever. My wife oftentimes, she doesn't handle them so well. It wasn't on the list. It wasn't on the list, you know. And, and, and in, in most marriages... One of the one of the spouses is like me, and the other one's like my wife. You know, it, it's just, you know, that that's what do, what do they say? Opposites attract. I think opposites drive each other crazy. I don't know. <clears throat> but I have a question for you. How did Paul safeguard his joy? It was because he had confidence in the Lord. In the midst of a prison cell, falsely accused, all of the the things that had to go along with that, he never forgot that God was in control. Now, I want to give you three thoughts, and if you've been at Grace Baptist Church for a while, you've heard these three thoughts before. <clears throat> but I want to I want to share them to you again because these three things I constantly remind myself of. Because I forget them. Number one, God knows what is best for me. God knows that. Number two, God wants what's best for me. Now, the first one is a little easier to acknowledge. The second one, yeah, sometimes we question that one. But the third one, is if you get a hold of it, it'll change your life. And that is God will do what is best for me. See, if we will accept that, then when hard times come, we can understand that God is always in control. 
That's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, but I would be, uh, <clears throat> uh, but I would, uh, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of, of the gospel. What, what's Paul saying there? Hey, you know what? The things that happened to me may not have been fair, but it, hey, it furthered the gospel. So in other words, it's a good thing. And he also said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. We love this verse, do we not? We love to quote this verse when everything's going well. Or when someone else is having a hard time, we like to tell them, we like to quote this verse to them, don't quote it back at me when I'm going through a hard time. But, you know, when you're going through a hard time, I'm going to remind you, you know, but what is the, what is the point of this? There is one word in this verse that in in yes, that, um, this entire verse. And that is the word all. We know that all things, good, bad, ugly, pretty, it doesn't matter. All things, all things work together for good. The byproduct byproduct of confidence, number one, joy. Number two, contentment. Look at verse 11 of our passage in verse four, in chapter 4. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore to be content. I know both uh, how to abase and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Many believers struggle with contentment. It is a, it's a big problem within Christianity today. But we can have contentment because of our confidence in God. Benjamin Franklin once said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. I like that. The implication of Paul's statement is that contentment is something that comes through time. In other words, contentment is a learned skill. You, you you don't you don't just wake up one morning and say okay you know what I I'm just I'm going to be content. But Paul says here, be content with such things as you have. In other words, it is a process that you have to you have to grow through it. You have to you have to be really truly willing to do without. You know, I have had the opportunity to travel to a, a lot of third world countries um, before for those of you that don't know before I was a pastor I was a missionary and I I, I did a lot of traveling around the world and I, I would 
spend time in a lot of third world countries. And I, I've been in I've been in homes where people feed you where <clears throat> the portion of meat that they fed you was their weekly portion for their family. And they're willing to forfeit their weekly portion of meat to feed a guest and eat beans the rest of the week. That's contentment. I was in a house in uh, Costa Rica and I was helping build a church down in Costa Rica. And a lady that went to the church wanted to feed all the volunteers. There were, I don't know, four or five, maybe six. There were six of us, yeah. Um, She wanted to feed all six of us lunch one day. So we went to her house. We actually walked to the house. It was just, I don't know, like two blocks from from the church. And as we sat in the living room, because she didn't have a dining room, all she had was a, a living room, a kitchen, and I, and I think, if I remember correctly, the living room was her bedroom. Just basically two rooms. But where I was sitting, I could see into the kitchen. There was no door in the kitchen, just a curtain. And the curtain was drawn, you know, she tried to keep pulling it, but every time she opened it, I could see into the kitchen. And her kitchen it consisted of a little stove, what we would call an apartment. Remember the old apartment stoves? Okay, just a two-burner stove. A sink with nothing underneath, just a, what are they, the wall-hung sinks, you know? Yeah, just a basin, basically. And all her pots and pans, all six of them, hung on the wall. That was her kitchen. Yet she served a meal that was fit for a king. I don't know about you, but most Americans, if their cupboards aren't full and their refrigerator isn't stocked, they freak out. Have you ever have you ever sat down to pray for a meal and really mean it? I mean, we go through the exercise because it's respectful and we appreciate what God has provided for us. But do you really mean it? I've sat down to eat food and I've seen how it was prepared. And I was scared to eat it. And I, when I prayed and God, God bless this food, I'm like, please. Why? Because I was not about to turn my nose up for something that somebody else sacrificed for. Contentment. Paul talked with young Timothy about contentment in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. But godliness with contentment is great gain. I love that. I love that opening sentence. For we, bo- uh, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they 
that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and unto <clears throat> excuse me and into many foolish and hurtful lust which drown men in this, this destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil now i'm going to stop right here money is not the root of all evil it's it's the love of money that's the root of all evil so if you if you hate your money give it to me <laughs> which while some covet after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows but thou O man of God flee these things and follow after righteousness godliness faith love patience and meekness contentment is the last thing our culture wants you to have. The, the, the multi-billion dollar advertising industry works day and night to keep you discontent. There's a, there's a commercial out that I, I have heard and I almost threw something at the TV. <laughs> I, I usually mute commercials, but I was a little slow, okay? And and I, I this this lady this lady comes on and and this is what and I didn't I don't know what she's talking about, but this is what I heard. I want to get what I deserve, and I'm like, excuse me, you don't deserve anything. I found an old article. I found an old article dated back to July 27, 1992. Okay, so this is a this is old. Okay, most of you, some of you weren't even born yet. Okay, um, <clears throat> but it's an article written by U.S. News and World Report <clears throat> to be very revealing about contentment in our country. The question was. What would it take for you to accomplish the American dream? What would it take for you to accomplish the American dream? <clears throat> the Americans with household incomes, <laughs> you know this is an old article, um, 25,000 to 54, uh, <clears throat> 25,000, it would take an income of 54,000 to be able to live the American dream. Now, now, we know this is an old article, okay? But those in the category of 100,000 plus average income said that it would take 192,000 to be able to accomplish the American. And in other words, the result of this study was that no matter what income bracket you're in, you need to be making twice as much as you are now. And I, you know, this is an old article, but that has not changed. In other words, we're never content. J.D. Rockefeller, those of you that know who J.D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men that's ever lived, was asked, how much money is enough? His answer was, just one more dollar. How sad. <laughs> 
My pastor of 20 years told me a story many years ago of a couple that he was counseling with that was in financial difficulty. And through their conversation, he uh, found out that their credit card debt was, every, every credit card they had was maxed out. <clears throat> and, and he told me, he said, if you were to look at this couple, they, I mean, they're just like normal people, you know. They're not, it's not like they're living in a, in a mansion or anything. And he, and he told him, he said, next week when you come back for counseling, he said, bring your, your credit card statements. So he, they brought their credit card statements, and he picked one of them up, and he just opened it up, and he, and he just looked at it, and he says, okay, on your, on your visa, blah, 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 uh, name me three things that you bought. They couldn't do it. They were in debt up to their eyeballs, and they had nothing for it but a bunch of stuff. When I when he when he told me of this, like I said, this was many years ago. <clears throat> I thought of Ecclesiastes chapter two and verse ten. King Solomon said this. He says. Uh, and whatsoever mine eye desire, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and was my portion of all my labor. Solomon basically said he lived what these people lived. Anything they got, anything they saw, they, they bought it. But I love the next verse, how Solomon summed it all up. In verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Then I looked on all my works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. It was all empty, worthless. One of the mistakes that Solomon made was he, he failed to be content. Probably the richest man, we know the, the smartest man, for being so smart, he did a lot of really stupid things. <clears throat> Probably in today's dollars, he would still be the richest man alive. And it was all empty because he couldn't be content. He just couldn't be content. The byproduct of uh, confidence, one is joy, number two is contentment, and number three is strength. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can do all things. I believe that Paul was absolutely convinced that there was nothing that he could not accomplish through God. I, I believe Paul was absolutely convinced that he could do anything through the strength of Christ. Paul's unusual confidence was not wrapped up in himself. It was wrapped up in Christ.
Verse 13 very clearly declares the source of his strength. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, all natural, uh, uh, <clears throat> all of nature depends on hidden resources. The great trees send their roots down into the earth to draw up water and minerals. Rivers have their sources in snow-capped mountains. The most important part of a tree is the part you cannot see, the root system. The most important part of a Christian's life is the part that only God sees. Unless we draw on deep resources of God by faith, we fail again the purpose of life. Paul depended on the power of Christ uh, at work in his life. He's, I can do all things through Christ was Paul's motto. And it can be your motto too. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he uh, which hath begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. I could keep going on and on and on, but Paul, there was no doubt in my mind that Paul was 100% dependent on Jesus Christ. That's why he could say in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus never intended for us to live a defeated life. He wants us to live a, a victorious life. Now, he never promises us a smooth life. Okay? I want to I I make sure everybody understands that. Nowhere in the Bible does it, the Bible say, hey, if you get saved, smooth sailing, you're good to go. If anything, it says what? Just the opposite. Because what? God is more important about if growing you than he is protecting you. God's desire is for all of us to grow. I, I hate to do this to you, Chris. I should have told, I just thought of it. Can you put that anchor video back, uh, our quote back up? <clears throat> there you go. In adversary, in adversity, we usually want God to do a removing work when he wants to do an improving work. See, what happens in our lives? Adversity comes along, and the first thing we ask God is to take it away. But Paul never does that. Paul was, Paul was more concerned about anchoring his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. And because of that, he, can, he accomplished incredible things for God. Mark chapter 10, verse 27. And Jesus, looking upon them, saith 
with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Paul was an incredible example for us. His confidence in the midst of horrible circumstances. Our confidence, our joy, our strength has to be anchored in Jesus Christ. It cannot be anchored in the circumstances of life and the turmoil and all of the, the stuff that's going on around us today. I mean, honestly, if you if you were to turn on the news today, you would think the world has gone mad. Literally. And it's easy to get depressed. Number one, anchor your soul in Jesus Christ. Number two, turn off the television. Because see, that is exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to discourage you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which strengtheneth, or excuse me, and which entereth into that wherewith, what's wherein um, the veil. I got another picture for you. You got that picture, Chris? <clears throat> this is a kind of, you you may be looking at, okay, what is this? The anchor was a popular symbol in the first century church. This is a picture of a carving in the catacombs where the the Christians used to hide. within Within the catacombs, over 66 images of an anchor have been found. I like this particular one because what is the symbol of a fish in the early church? It was a symbol of a believer. And what what have these two believers done? They've attached themselves to the anchor. What an incredible picture. Christians need to do this very thing. Grab hold of the anchor. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before uh, in the word of, of the truth of the gospel. Where's your hope? Is your hope in the gospel? Is it in Jesus Christ? Or is it or is it in your own ability? I sure hope it's not in your ability. Because if it is, you're in big trouble. By his grace. By his grace. Through faith, we can have hope and hope eternal. Let me close with this. Very simple question. What level of confidence, what, what level of hope do you have in Jesus Christ? Are you, are you anchored to Jesus Christ by a thread or have you attached yourself to the anchor? 
I can't answer that question for you. But the byproduct of confidence in Jesus Christ is joy. So I'm just here to tell you, if you're lacking joy, you need to check your check your anchor. Contentment? How's your contentment and your strength? All three of these are byproducts of confidence. Confidence is contagious. I love being around people that are confident in things of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you.